Hello, this is Reconstruction Calls. I'm your host, Spiritual Director Aaron Maines. Today I'm talking with my friend Dr. Eric Hansen. He's a surgeon whose family spent a bunch of years on the mission field in Kenya, so we'll talk about that a little bit more. I have to apologize also, my connection is pretty bad in this interview. I tried to clean it up, but what Eric had to say I think is really important for us to hear. Hey, Eric, thanks for taking a minute to talk uh, to us today. Uh, I'm going to get started. Help us get to know you a little bit. So uh, we'll do that the quickest way possible, which is you can share some of your typology with us. So what what do you know about yourself? Enneagram number, Myers-Briggs, Strength Finders, any of that? So I'm a three with sometimes an eight wing. I know that doesn't make, that doesn't make <laughs> sense, but... Uh, in my unhealthier times, I look more like an eight, but now I'm pretty, I'm a pretty strong three, um, with, on the Enneagram, uh, as far as Myers-Briggs, I did it a long time ago. I have no idea. I have done my <laughs> okay. Colby action modes. Uh, so Colby test, I'm a high fact finder. Um, okay. and then with the, you know, the strengths, uh, the Clifton strengths tests, I, I've taken it a couple of times in the last couple of years, but really I'm a strategic thinking kind of influencing sec, uh, domain heavy in those domains. So that's, you know, that's input, that's uh, communication achiever, which goes for, which kind of correlates with my threeness. Yeah. And how does that relate? Do you find that those things uh, help you like in terms of like getting into you know, medical school, doctor, surgeon, all of that. Do you feel like those things weighed into that, some of that decision? I'm sure they did. I mean, it's always interconnected. I mean, certainly the, the stereotype of the three is that I'm, I'm a high achiever and I, I was constantly achieving and pleasing and that, you know, and I, I grew up in a family that was very loving and very gracious and but I, both of my parents actually were physicians. They met in medical school. And so kind of wow. medicine is what I knew. And I think I internalized probably at a young age, not that my parents uh, <laughs> kind of imposed this on me, but I internalized at a young age that, you know, it's as a achieving, you know, kid doing well in school that, you know, medicine was a, was a good option. And so. Well, hey, you want to play a game? Yes. This game is called Laughter is the Best Medicine. And it's it's a really, really simple and dumb game, which is I read the name. I mean, I read a uh, uh, the first part of a joke and you have to sort of finish the punchline. So question one is, uh, did you hear about the guy who went numb on his entire left side? Any ideas on what the punchline is? Holy cow, I'm so not funny. Um, <laughs> on his left side, he was not in his right mind. Oh, that's close. He's all right now. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, question two. The doctor told me I had acute appendicitis, and I said... What does an ugly appendicitis look like? <laughs> You're so close. It's compared to who? Acute appendicitis is compared to <laughs> Okay. Uh, question th- or joke three is... Uh, this, this one's really dumb. Just fair warning. Um, where do invisible people go for a checkup? The Phantom Clinic. Oh, so close to the ICU. Oh my yeah, gosh! ICU. Okay, holy cow! Yeah, <laughs> that's a stretch for me. Were, yeah, <laughs> I didn't say these were like good jokes. I just a yeah. different joke. Okay, okay. Bonus question. 
Uh, I think you'll know this one. What do you call a doctor who finished last in his class at medical school? Doctor. Doctor. That's right. That's right. Uh, that was for all tomorrow. So you actually win. You win a uh, surge, an elective surgery of your choice. <laughs> but not these days in Dallas. <laughs> not. But so we'll have to get it. We'll have to get it released. Yeah. <laughs> so Eric, the faith I grew up with. I would say pretty much like ignored our bodies. So we all sort of accepted the idea that we were fallen beings. And so that made things like the earth or like our own bodies or oftentimes like our own intuition kind of like sinful in a way, which of course means that what we feel or who we know ourselves to be would be essentially untrustworthy. So I think like uh, something that I might have wanted, I really would have doubted. Like, do I really want that? Or is that like, is that sin in my life? Or what does that look like? Should I be praying more about that? Those sorts of things. So I wanted to have you on to talk through what it's like to be a doctor, more specifically a surgeon, who has been through, uh, you know, your own deconstruction, essentially because of the work that God led you to. So let's start here from a surgeon, from being a surgeon place. Let's start with um, what drew you to become a surgeon in the first place? Sure. Okay. The broad picture is that I, I was drawn to medicine. Um, the, the quirky thing is that I, I, I kind of grew up with it in, in my family just because my dad was a surgeon and I kind of knew mm -hmm. that. But for a while, I was going to own a dude ranch and I wasn't going to do medicine. And then, you know, in college, I had this bizarre, this is so cheesy. <laughs> I had this bizarre kind of epiphany. I was, I was actually the student union watching ER one day and, and I was like, I'm going to be a surgeon. Like it, it was, I think I was a sophomore in college. I uh, kind of went on to medical school and in medical school, I tried to be open-minded about this various specialties. And, you know, we rotate on all different kinds of um, specialties in medicine. And, and I liked most of what I did, but, um, you know, surgery, the thing that drew me to surgery was partly uh, what draws, I think, a lot of people to, to surgery, especially general surgery, which is what I do, um, is the idea that, you know, you can diagnose a problem, you can fix it right then. Um, you're mm -hmm. also a trauma surgeon, so you're, you're taught and trained how to take care of sick and dying people. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, attractive and um, stimulating at times, um, tragic at other times. And so I think that for me was that in surgery, I got to do a lot of stuff. I like to learn a lot of medicine, but I also got to, to do things with my hands and I got to fix things. And, and I didn't have to linger on most things. Most patients kind of if they have an operation and they're kind of done and you move on. Right. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's attractive to me. So how do you go from being a surgeon uh, sort of in a hospital, a hospital level, medical school, hospital level to, um, so as a part of your story, you guys went to the mission field. So tell me more about going from uh, being a surgeon to like going to the mission field. Yeah. You know, I, that was at the time, what I would have said was it was what really we felt my wife and I felt that we were, you know, Amanda and I felt like we were kind of called to, called to this place. And it, mm -hmm. it was not what we were planning at all. In fact, it, while we were dating, Amanda asked if I was going to be a long-term kind of cross-cultural missionary. And the, the right answer was no. Um, and my legitimate answer at the time was no. And so we kept going in our dating and we ultimately got married. And it was sort of a bait and switch because now a number of years <laughs> later, I'm finishing my, all my training. And I, I hear about this hospital in Kenya, this place where they're um, doing pediatric surgery training in East Africa. It was the first uh, pediatric mm -hmm. surgery training program and the, um, the formal training program in East Africa. 
and I was soon to, you know, go into and then um, finish my pediatric surgical training. And that just felt like, I was like, wow, we, we could do this. And, you know, we kind of looked into options. We, we felt this sort of pull to the country of Africa. We were mm-hmm. very ignorant about the black box of the continent of Africa and mm-hmm. didn't have a clue about, you know, the, anything about it. And so Kenya could have been South Africa, could have been Ghana, could have been, you mm-hmm. know, Ethiopia. It was kind of ignorance. Um, but we, we looked into it and we found a place where it felt like this is where we were um, supposed to go. And really the only, the only door that opened uh, kind of surprising to us was, was this hospital in Kenya. And we, mm-hmm. so we moved there uh, shortly after I finished all my training and I uh, worked at a faith-based mission hospital there that's owned by the local church. Mm-hmm. And we worked alongside Kenyan physicians and nurses. And uh, we ran, I ended up running the training program for, uh, pediatric surgery and was able to train in part or totally uh, a number of surgeons from multiple countries in sub-Saharan Africa, some of which were the first or the second trained pediatric surgeon in their country. And so that, that was really kind of a, a draw to me. And, you know, I felt, we really felt a calling. We felt like that was mm-hmm. what God had, had had for us. Right. And that. Yeah. So in addition to being you know, a surgeon, uh, you guys are doing what are essentially like part of like mission organization work as well. So it's like fundraising and any of the other requirements you may have to meet with other like the mission organizations you're a part of, correct? You're, you're absolutely right. We were, we were the prototypical missionaries. We were volunteers in the country and we raised all our support from family, friends and churches um, here in the U.S., mm-hmm. mostly in the U.S., some Canada. Yeah. So, you know, as a part of that, you got, where you guys are from, like in, from a faith perspective is you're following a calling that, that you feel is on your life. And so in that, you know, I think a lot of people think, well, if God is calling me to this, then the road should be smooth right um so uh what what's the road smooth as you uh you know maybe get into it and then as you you start living into it like how does that work is the road smooth i mean i i feel like i'm not sure that i would ever volunteer to to be a missionary in any kind of capacity but what what does that road look like to go from you know kind of being like in america to jumping to the mission field and, and is that road smooth, especially from, a, from a, I guess, a faith perspective? I don't know. I don't know. The process wasn't smooth. Um, we've, we had a, a, a real sense of direction and a sense of commitment, which is, which is what really we held on to even during, you know, hard times, be it, you know, threats of terror in the region mm-hmm. or difficult, you know, not having water to shower or mm-hmm. electricity, mm-hmm real unreliability kind of stuff. Um, you know, you kind of hold on through those, but nothing's perfect. Right. I mean, and, right. and in some ways I think, you know, I had a friend of ours, uh, a friend of mine tell me, I, you know, sometimes this is what God does to weed out people. Right. Cause it's mm-hmm. not, cause if you think it's easy, um, and you're expecting it, it's easy. You won't last. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's really true. But that's true probably in anything that's worth doing. But, it, that, you know, that idea does sound like God is sort of manipulating things uh, to, to sort of prove out, like, who's the toughest or who's the best or something like that. Did, so did, did, that, did that sentiment resonate with you? I, I, I think that 
resonates with my with my faith tradition, the faith tradition that I was raised with, right? Mm-hmm. I think what you mentioned is that you know there's um, if it was if it was easy, kind of my perspective was if it was easy, it must not be from God, right? You know? mm-hmm. um, it could because God's all about suffering, uh, and I don't. I think we're we are as human beings, we learn mostly from suffering, um, but that's not exclusively true. Uh, And I, I, and I do think that for, for me, there was something, there was something real about that sense of purpose. um, Even if it was going to be hard. And honestly, there were things where we had people visit us and they would say, man, I can't believe this seems so hard. And, and the things that they thought were hard, weren't hard for, right but but we had other we knew other people and it's just you know other things were hard for other people so as you guys got started and sort of worked through being on the mission field would you have considered your faith in god strong definitely i mean i would have said that that was my motivating factor that was my north star that was my Mm. um that was my worldview right and so it was Mm -hmm. the lens with through which i viewed my experiences and i fully admit that my lens is just that mine and it's flawed and it's not necessarily a, a, a reflection of who the creator of the universe is, but it certainly was my understanding at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, God as creator is sort of interesting. I think we as Americans oftentimes think like when we're going to Africa, let's say that, like you said, the country of Africa, <laughs> uh, when we're going to somewhere like that, oftentimes I think we feel like we're going to, change like change the world change something for the better um when you got over there did it feel overwhelming it felt exciting at first right i I think it maybe in some ways became overwhelming but i there is no way that i i think just like we're um we're ignorant a lot of times to the to the cultural implicit biases that we're raised with Um, Mm -hmm. that, that translates into our kind of faith and understanding and, you know, the, the, the white savior mentality that is, I think has been part and parcel of the North American cross-cultural mission effort for 150, Mm -hmm. 200 years is really like subtle at times and ingrained. And you do think you're going to, to help, um, and do something. And I, and I, you have to though change and realize that you're not there to fix and help. You're there to come alongside and, mm-hmm. and join people. And if that means suffering together, that means suffering in, in the hard things together. If that means mm-hmm. celebrating together, that means celebrating together. But you're not, you don't have some special thing to give other than yourself and your heart. And I think that mm-hmm. that's not always. I don't know that I understood that. In fact, I would say I did not understand that as much as I would have tried to give lip service to that. I didn't understand that when we, when we moved over. Um, Yeah. I can see how like landing, getting on the ground, feeling like I do have something to offer until, yeah, because you don't know anybody. Right. And so until you know, like names and faces and actual people that that's true, no matter where you're at, uh, you, you don't know much about the people who live there until you're actually living there with them and being a part of that right absolutely and and i mean the reality is i was a foreigner and i was still a foreigner i was a you know and i 
couldn't know the culture the way they did. I, you know, they had people, people that I worked with were brilliant and, and amazing and unbelievably tolerant of difficult mm-hmm. situations and willing to, to push through and, and work toward, you know, something better. Right. And that yeah. was, that's the reality. Can you talk about maybe how that changes some of your faith along the way too? Let's say kind of the middle years of that. Do you feel, uh, is your faith sort of the same or is it changing as your perspective on all of it is changing? So the reality is that in the developing world, wherever you are, um, death and complications within the medical field are significant. They're much uh, more common and they happen at times when you don't expect them. Right. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like that suffering and pain. and, And here I am, I'm a pediatric surgeon. And so I'm, I'm operating on and dealing with children. And so when, when I have complications or when I have deaths, these are deaths of children, right? Mm. Which for me, and I guess many people is, is a lot harder than, you know, the, it's tragic when a family member dies, it's tragic when a grandfather dies or a brother or whatever. But you know, when the 75 year old dies of a surgical complication, you kind of can go, man, he had a he had a long life. He has family yeah. and all this kind of stuff. Right. But when the five-year-old dies of a surgical complication, you know, it is just, it's heart-wrenching. And mm-hmm. trying to figure out, like, at times, feeling like, and this, this, is, the, this is the comment of a, a good friend of mine who came and worked with me some and, and where, I, where, I, where we were in East Africa. And, you know, he said, you know, in the middle of the night, this kid's not doing well, and I'm at the bedside. The pediatricians are at the bedside. The nurses are at their bedside. We're doing everything we can. Everybody's showing up, and the kid dies, and it feels like God doesn't show up, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, those trials and the suffering that actually are probably c- the common experience of the majority of the world, mm-hmm. um, but we're kind of isolated and sheltered from it in this high resource, North American, high healthcare expenditure place, right? We, we don't realize it and it's, it's challenging. And so that really, for me was like, God, where are you? You know, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm praying with moms about their babies and praying for them to, to get better. And, and they don't, and they die. The next one I pray for and it dies. And, and you're kind of like, what is this prayer doing? Where are you, God? I can see how it would really feel like God doesn't care. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about this whole like, you know, view of God. Is, it, is God the, the, the clockmaker who kind of sits, sits above and starts it and, you know, maybe sits on yeah. top of Mount, Mount Olympus, so to speak, or winds the clocks and just lets them go? Like, that's what it kind of mm-hmm. felt like. Because I wasn't willing to, to you know, deny God, though I, I question that, right? I'm like, God, where are mm-hmm. you? Is there a God? Because because I'm feeling pretty desolate right now. So as you move through that time, what are you working on in terms of? Are you still are you still trying to hold on to faith? Are you angry and just ready to let it all go? Like, where are you at personally in in terms of midst of all? I think it's all of the above. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm I'm trying to hold on to something that I. That I, I'm trying to hold on to a construct that I was, you know, kind of raised in, and yet mm-hmm. aspects of it don't don't work anymore. They don't fit, yeah. and it it is in, in incredibly emotionally like difficult. 
when you start to go, this doesn't make sense, whatever that this is. Maybe for me at times, it was the kind of internal consistency of scripture, right? Or the, or the mm-hmm. times appar- apparently lack thereof. Or, or the notion of what, you know, prayer is, you know, is prayer, mm-hmm. are you, is this, is God supposed to be Santa Claus, you know, and every time I ask for something, like I get a, I get something or, if, and if yeah. I don't, it's because I was on the naughty list, you know, Richard Rohr and falling upward, you know, talks about this box that we build and that box is really important. Um, but at a certain point we, that box is either destroyed, we, we destroy it, mm-hmm. it's destroyed for us and we're, we're you know, for me, it was like feeling lost out at sea, you know, where mm-hmm. the, the ship is wrecked, you kind of, the ship's falling apart in the storm and, and you're floating out in the sea and you don't even know which way you're going mm-hmm. and just having to go, God, I, 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 where are you? I want to know what it means to, to be in relationship with you, um, real yeah. relationship, you know. In a full contrast, things like science uh medicine so like working with the body there's there's ways that those things are supposed to work right so like science has solutions and answers uh and oftentimes faith uh in some moments does not so how does that contrast uh you have this ongoing sort of faith struggle and then at the same time you your day-to-day working life is about sort of fact, fact-based, truth-based operation and science. Uh, is there a frustration that exists between the, those two items, like faith and science? They, you know, where is the truth in the midst of that? Uh, I guess for me, looking at science and looking at um, medicine, you know, there's a book that our author Holmes wrote, and I don't think he coined this phrase, but, you know, all truth is God's truth. I'm not sure if that was from Thomas Aquinas or what, but I, 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 I kind of heard that first when I was in college and, and that really struck with me, stuck with me and, and, and struck me as real and true. And that, you know, if it's true, it's God's truth. And, and mm-hmm. I think the, the willingness to kind of open up and figure out what truth is, right? And to realize that, wow, some things that I was taught and believed were true may not actually be true. And therefore, mm-hmm. they weren't God's truth. They were just someone's interpretation of that. Um, mm-hmm. And that included, you know, inerrancy of scripture. That included personhood of God, you know, the, the Trinity. I, I tell you, in my faith tradition, I think the Trinity was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scripture. Um, mm-hmm. And sure. And not, and so there was a the aspect of God with us um, in in the presence of the Holy Spirit was kind of uh, not as emphasized or 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 taught and and so I'm, I, it didn't bother me when I learned things with science, but I think one of the things that um, you know I think you know I've talked about this before, but uh, I I took care of kids who were born with a description uh, who were born intersex and that term mm-hmm. um, has a lay, you know, has a lay definition that can be pretty broad. And in, there are a lot of organizations that kind of define it and anybody can look those up. Uh, but kind of the, there are, there are patients who were born with, you know, both an ovary and a testis, right? There are mm-hmm. kids who are born with, a, with anatomically what is, what are truly ambiguous genitalia. They don't fit in the typical, you know, male, appearance or female appearance. 
And, right. and, you know, here are these kids that I'm caring for and they're precious. Their families want the best for them. The families are understandably scared because they live in a culture that's, that also doesn't, that, that doesn't have a lot of space for the, sure. the ambiguity of the in-between, you know, mm-hmm. of the intersex. And, and so that was an area that for me, as far as, I guess it, it's maybe not directly answering your question, but it kind of gets to the reality of what I was seeing in humanity and what I was seeing in people um, didn't necessarily kind of mesh well with at least my understanding of the, the faith tradition that I was raised in. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had to kind of, that's what I had to try to figure out and how to reconcile because I would, I would consider, you know, I'd play this, this kind of thought experiment with myself and I would say, okay, I've got this patient who has both an ovary and a testis and let's take this, this child who maybe at two years of age, uh, the parents say, no, no, this is a, this is a boy. I want this patient to be a boy. And you know, this child is then raised as a boy, Mm -hmm. maybe actually reconstructed operatively as a boy. Um, this, that goes into a whole other topic that we don't need to go into necessarily, but it, and, and the, 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 the ethics of that or the timing of all of that are really important, but, um, and the child's assent and consent, but, but let's just say that, you know, the, the child is raised as a male. And, uh, when that child turns 25, he's attracted to a woman, he gets, he falls in love, they get married. He's a member of the church. He's a, becomes a, a deacon and then maybe even an elder, maybe a pastor. And he's revered and he's, you know, a, a thriving member of this faith body and Mm -hmm. great. Terrific. Well, I, my thought experiment was, okay, let's say we take that same child at two and we raise that child as a female. I mean, again, this child has both evidence of both Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, sexes and there's a difference Mm -hmm. between sex and gender at least from a medical standpoint and from a from a a dialogue standpoint um Mm -hmm. definition but so this child let's say is raised female and this same child at 25 is just like before attracted to a woman wants to get married Mm -hmm. um maybe can or can't depending on which country you live in these days maybe Mm -hmm. uh and and for me, that same person is now a pariah in the mm. church. And that, that person doesn't have the same faith community that, that welcomed the other manifestation mm-hmm. actually views this same person, would view this same person as, as heinously sinful and unable to be part of the faith community, right? Right, and right. I just, I, I couldn't handle that. Mm. I, 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 I couldn't handle the fact that, 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 that these kids and ultimately these adults, um, through no fault of their own, um, they, they did or didn't have a place based on some maybe choices that other people made for them. Right. Um, or maybe they didn't, maybe other people didn't, maybe they were able to kind of self-define and, and, and they were able to live out the gender identity that they most identified with. 
And, Mm -hmm. and yet that didn't mesh with the traditional, what for me, for my faith tradition was a, a very conservative evangelical background that didn't mesh with a lot of those churches. And so where does that person find love and, 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 and belonging and hope? Um, I, and I wasn't willing to just say, well, you know, it's because sin entered the world. And so this is a manifestation of sin, just like cancer is a manifestation of sin or, you know, whatever. And that somehow that this is just what we have to live with and they have to choose to be celibate or they have to, you know, choose to, to deny their kind of identity. And it just made me realize, or made me kind of consider. And I think for me, realize that, that, gender may not be binary, right? That, that, mm. that there isn't this really clear cut. For most people, the majority it is, but not for everyone. And that's true at the brain level. I mean, that's true at the organ level. I mean, the brain responds to the hormones. And mm-hmm. so if you got brain bathed in different hormones, it's going to respond differently. And, and wow. I... I wanted, and I desperately, for me, I needed this segment of the church, the body of Christ, to have mm-hmm. a place and have a home and be loved and be, be, be welcomed and be able to be who they were, I think, created to be, right? And, mm-hmm. and at least I didn't feel that that was necessarily available in most of the uh, faith communities that I was familiar with and that I grew up mm-hmm. in. Yeah, for me, just hearing that story, oftentimes I hear people pray like creator God or God the creator. That concept of God is called into question. It's called into question if you are unwilling to say that those people were created that way by God. So in a sense, we often think of being fearfully and wonderfully made. And I think the the implicit bias of that idea is that the people who are the most normal, you know, amongst us are the sort of fearfully and wonderfully made ones. Um, and then everybody that's sort of an aberration of that, you know, quote unquote normal, sin becomes a part of the conversation, as opposed to sin being a part of the conversation for everyone. Um, and, and so for me, the idea of like the creator God is called into question, is God the great clock maker that just set the clock up and left us alone or like, sort of like you were saying, or is God fearfully and wonderfully making, you know, mixed binary, you know, non-binary people? Wow. That's a huge question and calls so much of faith onto the table to say now do I have to rethink everything? And that's a really scary place. It was. It, it's less so now. I've, I've through a number of years now and processing it. Um, but I, you're right. It, it's scary. But you know, anything anything that challenges your your kind of paradigm and your worldview is always scary for for all of us. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think that God, you know, God becoming man in the in the Christian faith tradition. You know, I which is what I grew up in and what I hold to is that there is a there's a co-suffering, right? And, mm-hmm. and that God came and suffered with us. And sometimes that's what he calls us to do, right? With each other, to suffer with each other, right? And that, you know, if it's, if it's because the, the healthcare systems of a whole region of, of a continent are um, underfunded and under, 
underdeveloped um, and that patients are suffering because of that and not having access to care, then, you know, if you're the expat missionary, that your job is to go and work alongside and suffer, so to speak, with with the folks that are working and living and, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and, and know that if it's, you know, if it's your best friend who's lost his, lost his wife, suffer from suffer alongside him. I, I think that's what, that's what Jesus did. And I think that coming, I don't like to rest finally on that because that's not very comfortable from a faith standpoint, mm-hmm. but I, I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that, that, that Jesus, God with us, the spirit with us now, you know, is so important. That's been so important for me and trying to understand that. And I don't want to understand it well at all. Um, and I'm so far from where I want to be. You know, I, I think of the story in Acts where Jesus says, you know, wait here. I've got to go, but wait here be, until the spirit comes. Right. Mm-hmm. He didn't say wait here until you have canonized scripture. Mm-hmm. Right. He didn't say he said, wait here till the spirit comes, till I am with you forever, right? At all times. And I don't know mm-hmm. what that means all the time. Most of the time, I don't know what it means, but <laughs> I, I, but it's got to mean that, that, that you belong, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like, like you, we now, because of grace and mercy of a creator loving God, that we belong for eternity. Eric, thanks for sharing part of your story with us. That's just powerful to listen to. Um, hey, man, before I let you go, what has you hung up right now? Maybe it's a book or a podcast or a movie or something, uh, whatever it is. We want to know what you're paying attention to, and maybe in some way it's affecting your faith. Maybe not. We don't know. Um, but uh, what would you recommend to us to check out and, and why? Uh, it's irreverent. It's probably, it's, it's, maybe it affects my faith in a negative way. Who knows? But I, I, I've watched the, the two seasons. There are only two seasons of I'm Sorry, which is Andrea Savage. And okay. I, it's, it's completely irreverent. It's this sitcom. And, and she's, she is, she owns me. She's nonstop talking. <laughs> and, and I just sat and laughed. And Amanda was like, I, I can't believe you keep watching that. But I, 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 I'm actually wanting to rewatch it because she's, she, she kills me anyway so I, I i don't know how much it affects my faith but it certainly gives me a distraction hey thanks for listening you can find out more about spiritual direction and me aaron mains at my website www.aaronmains.com